This is an ABC podcast. It's not often the police have greeted me when I've landed in an Australian airport, but that is exactly what happens touching down on the Cocos Islands. Landing alone on the tiny little Coral Atoll, 3,000 k's heading west into the ocean from Perth and WA is quite something. Climbing down from the sky, the tiny paradise islands come into view and it's that rare time somewhere is exactly how you would imagine. White sand, aqua blue ocean and coconut trees swaying in the breeze. On disembarking, a federal police officer corrals visitors into the airport lobby and sets down the rules of the islands. Take it easy on the road, we travel slow here, don't drink and drive, and remember, there's no mobile phone coverage. So if you get into trouble, he says, use the walkie-talkies that are scattered around the place. But don't worry, someone will always pick you up. Islanders are friendly like that. I'm Sinead Mangan, and for this last show of the year, we're taking you to one of Australia's most remote territories, the Cocos Keeling Islands. First stop for Australia Wide was working with the teenagers at the Cocos Islands District High School. Now, although they were shy at first, they were keen to get on the microphone to have a crack at what it's like to present on the radio. You're listening to Australia Wide. I'm Holly McNear and I live on Cocos Keeling Island. I love the black tip reef sharks. I'm Azumal and I love the traditional food here. It's way different from the mainland food because we use a lot of spices. I'm Ayub. I love um, riding bikes and staying at home, do nothing. I'm Adina and I love my family, spending time with my partner, the food, coconuts and the beaches. I'm Shazan and I love the ocean. I'm Muaz and I live on Cocos Islands and I love... <laughs> <laughs> My name is Zami and I love the community in Cocos and I love the sea life. Um, it's Fuzzly. I love the community, but I would prefer better internet. You are listening to Australian Wide. My name is Neeman. I live on Cocos Island and I love the community and um, the school and the sea life. The last voice you heard there was Net Mann. She's a grandmother to one of the students in class and a constant presence there. But that is the way it is on Cocos. Community and extended family is absolutely everything. The kids in the class are from the two islands that make up Cocos, West and Home Island. And every day, Net Mann travels 8Ks by ferry to school to keep a watchful eye over the teens. The Cocos High School classroom is like no other you would see in Australia. Students bounce between the local Cocos Bahasa, or language, and English freely. And the lolly snakes I brought with me had to be checked to see if they were halal or not. And I was so thankful when we found out they were. And life for these teens is very different to mainlander kids. My favourite thing is probably the community and the sea life that we, sur- we are surrounded by. Tell me about the sea life. What can you see off the islands? The sea life, you can see... Basically, the reef fish, different types of corals, abundance of baby fish throwing the reef. Have you noticed that change at all over time in 15 years? Yes, indeed. Um, the loss of seagrass, which has impacted the population of fish, because back then we could fish from like from the sandbags on Homan. Now, fish there we hardly catch anything. So, have you had to find new spots to fish? Yeah, mostly now we go fishing by boat. 
does everyone have a boat? Yeah, uh, mostly everyone on home on, owns a boat or two. So you must have learned how to drive a boat pretty young then? Definitely. Um, learned, from, learned from my granddad. used to go fishing with him all the time. He basically taught me how to fish basically from a really young age. Taught me about the different currents, the channels, when when to go out fishing, dangers of it and what to keep and what to not keep. Do you want to stay here? I do, but at the same time I want to, I want to explore the world, try different experiences, whereas here you're limited to experiences. What do you think about the rising, the fact that you have to sandbag everything on Home Island? It's pretty um, devastating to see that the island sinking and definitely scares me because I love this place and wouldn't want it to go underwater. You have people come to the school and tell you things like that. What's that feel like? It feels traumatising, to be honest. It traumatises you because um, you never know when when's it going to happen, either 20 years or in 100 years. The class is a mix of home islanders like Iz Fusley and teens like Holly McNear, who's living on Cocos because her dad teaches at the school. Definitely different. Um, I left a lot of things behind. left my dog, I left my friends, but it's a completely different experience here. Not something that everyone gets to have. So I'm very fortunate to be living here right now. As soon as our plane touched the ground, I knew it was going to be an otherworldly experience. It's so green, so healthy, so many different animals that you wouldn't really see in Perth. Like, as beautiful as Perth is, you wouldn't really be able to step outside and see millions of hermit crabs and reef sharks. How do you spend your time here when you're not at school? How do you like to spend your time here? I do a lot of art, so I like to incorporate things on the beach. We get lots of thongs washed up here, um, lots of rubber, different textures that's all been worn down by rocks, sand and water. So it's all very cool to involve that into art. Um, Yeah, I really do enjoy my art. It is therapeutic for me. So when I'm not at school and not talking to my friends, I will sit down, put on some music and do some art. As unfortunate as it is to have so much rubbish on this island, I think it's quite beautiful to find something with such a tragic reason to be there. So much rubbish on the beaches and turn it into something more meaningful. On any given Thursday, you can hear people teeing off across the road from the school at the Cocos Islands Golf Club. And as the club president, Luke Doherty, explains, this is a golf course with a difference. Tee-off happens across an international airstrip. Yeah, we've got a few little quirks about our club. Uh, We play straight across an international runway. It's a great resource for locals to come out and experience our uh, our island at times. Uh, As you can see, there's a plane landing in the background as we speak. That's just reality on Cocos Island. This is it, so we are often bound by uh, operations on the runway, so obviously we'll wait for clearance now for that plane to be on the apron and then we'll get permission to cross the runway and and hit across Uh, and then obviously when we come back later in the afternoon uh, we'll obviously be seeking permission or or clearance to cross to come back again. 
How often does that happen, Luke? Uh, most days that we play a comp, we'll have a plane in and out at some stage. Uh, Sundays is generally the quieter days, but we often get defence planes and, and border force, things like that, coming in and interrupting our golf, unfortunately. But <laughs> uh, we tend to plan around it, so we've got good contacts in uh, the airport operations. Uh, they can let us know, and we can plan around those plane landings and operations in general. What do you have to consider when you're, you're playing around an international runway? Uh, well there's emergency response we have to consider so we often have a phone or a radio out there in case you know there is a plane coming in we need to be able to get across the runway if there is an emergency again so we can contact airport operations if there is a plane coming in and someone can come around. Uh, other than that it's fairly uh, stock standard we just contact the operator or whoever's on call for the airport at the time and, and they'll give us clearance to cross. How long has this club been around for? Uh, it's founded in 1962. We've had a v- couple of different iterations of the golf course layout. Uh, they used to be sand greens back in the day, and they used to play up the uh, western side more. Uh, at the moment, we've only got one hole or one green on the western side. The rest of the course is on the eastern side. So, yeah, we've had a couple of different layouts and lots of different members over the years. Uh, and it's great because we've got a lot of different members come through over the years so everyone leaves their mark on the club in one way or another generally leaves it better which is great it gives people another option outside of you know if if it's a bit windy we can come out and play golf still or if it's you know tides are not the right at the time for kite surfing or surfing or things like that you know we still have that amenity so uh, I think it is important Um, we do offer another option apart from going to the pub or hanging around at home you know it's it's just it's a nice mental health uh, bonus for the islands as well to get out and get some exercise Cocos is miles, literally thousands of miles away from anywhere. The closest capital city is Jakarta in Indonesia, but yet the Coral Atoll is part of Australia and it is the oddest feeling being surrounded in water, knowing that landfall is far from view. And it's Cocos' location, close to the Sunda Strait, that makes it a strategic defence location for Australia. Law and order on the islands is looked after by the federal police and the officer in charge, Sergeant Geoffrey Cookon, took us for a tour of the atoll on the police boat. While we were out there, though, we came across an international crew that had run into a spot of bother. One of their sailors had been bitten by a shark. We are understanding you guys were going to today, yesterday. Yeah, I know. If you didn't uh, hear about it, one of our crew got bit by a shark yesterday. Oh, was that your crew? Yeah. He's not going to be able to return? Uh, it's a pretty bad injury, so it's, it's one, it's more, do I really want to take the liability? I mean, it's a pitch and roll and boat, and somebody with a foot injury is going to be a bit, uh... All right, no dramas. Okay. Was that? Is he okay? Yeah, he's alright. He's going to be fine. It's an inconvenience more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Because your next stop was going to be. Uh, Rodriguez. Rodriguez. That's right. Alright, yeah. Alright, we'll wait to hear back from you then. Alright, we'll see you a bit later. Injuries on the water are all part of a day's work for Sergeant Jeffrey Kukon. His daily checklist is wide and varied. Anything from checking cargo ships for substances looking for illegal fishing boats, greeting inbound visitors and defence workers at the airport and maintaining general law and order. It's a most unusual job for a man whose career has seen him working, chasing paedophiles online and heading up policing at Australia's biggest airport in Sydney. So you come from an environment where you have all the resources and cavalry, as I like to say, available to you. That if you need people, you need hospital, you need medical, you need the proper care, 
you need extra resources. Um, I've got resources from other state territories that are available to me. Plus, I have a huge team. I had a team of, well, at Sydney Airport, I had a team of eight plus an additional eight members. So I had quite a lot of people to help me um, with work. And you go from that impact to one where you are pretty much working on your own um, with one or two other members, depending if someone's on leave and that in a small remote place away from all those cover all that resources all those cover so it is a bit of a culture shock and it's something you have to learn very quickly how to adapt so what would you say has been the trickiest time where you found that a struggle the pr- trickiest time is when there is an emergency situation on and i've got to make those priority calls and make those decisions how we're going to deal with the situation until we can get an additional resource in you know, so anything from um, a medical emergency where we've had to assist with a person who um, has um, a surfer who, who had an incident on, on reef, uh, they hit their head and they were unconscious in the water. Now, they were very lucky because they had two friends with them and both were doctors and they were able to help them initially with CPR and that. But the decisions you have to make is instantaneous, got to get a doctor. So the doctor lives mainly on home island. This person was on West Island where the incident occurred, so we have to arrange for a doctor to get out here. So we use our police boat as the emergency boat generally to get him across. Obviously, in this case, it led to just the medivac. We were able to get him on to the medivac within the next couple of hours, and then it's a five-hour trip back to, to Perth. So they'll always go to Perth, not to Jakarta, no, to the International Hospital there? No, always go to Perth, always go to Perth. It's just too logistically hard if they're Australian citizens and they don't have passports and things like that to get them over. Because you don't need a passport to come here, as long as you're an Australian citizen, obviously. So it's really multi-layered because you're dealing with what's going on in the water, you're dealing with medical situations that couldn't be any more different to your usual policing. And then also you're dealing with what's going on in the airport. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so the airport is a constant barrage of new flights coming in. So we'll take either government flights that might come in, and they include defence flights. Uh, We'll have private citizens on their private jets that might choose to fly in as well. And they'll send us applications that they're flying in. And then you have your commercial flights, your Virgin um, flights that come in with a whole bunch of passengers. So Jeff, how often would you have private flights coming in, like private jets? a few people that have got a lot of money and happy to spend it (laughs) and they're happy to fly their private jet into the country um, or into the island I should say. The other thing we can see off the horizon here is a huge cargo ship, freight ship and that freight ship comes in every six weeks. What's the story with that in terms of for you? How does that create work for you? Well that's got all the containers in it so that might be containers from all over the world. So we get a manifest and then as a result of that manifest, we'll make a decision on what containers we search. So just like any other main city, Perth, Sydney, what have you, they get a manifest and then they decide to search different containers. They have x-ray machines. We don't. We do it via visual search. It's a lot harder. It's a lot slower. But that's the only option we have available to us. It's kind of, it's funny too because you're doing all the checks and balances that's expected for mainland Australia, but you're doing it on literally a paradise island. It's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad at all. What, what about the kind of normal policing things that we would associate with a town? Law and order, that kind of thing. Yeah, just like anywhere else, you get, you get your crime. But in all honesty, crime is not huge here, which is a good thing. In saying that, you still have to deal with issues, assaults, thefts, small thefts, things like that. But you don't get the organised crime element here, the larger... Um, issues that you would get on other on other places. The other element that we have that's different is the majority of people that come here, it's more expensive to travel here. So what we call it is we don't get the barley crowd. 
given that Bali is a lot cheaper to go to from Perth um, rather than people coming here, the element of drunken and hooliganism doesn't really happen here. Uh, we do have a club on West Island, but we never, I, since I've been here, I've never received a call. It's, it's managed really well by the staff here, and the locals also keep a lid on things as well. I don't think people want to come here with that kind of element to try and cause trouble because it's kind of quashed pretty quickly by the locals before we even get involved. Um, and in saying that, it's just locals telling people, just calm it down, relax, and we don't do that on Cocos Islands. As Sergeant Geoffrey Kukan said, the Cocos Club is the central hub of the island. Peculiarly, because Cocos is an external territory of Australia, all alcohol is duty-free. But as he said, people rarely get out of hand. On a balmy night, it's the place to hang out on West Island and catch up on island life. The manager there is Amy Rosebach. We've tried really hard to pin down when it was started. Uh, going back, even some of our local historians can't give us an, an exact year because it sort of started apparently from um, after the Second World War, the officers' mess where they would go and have a drink when they were on island. And then it just slowly evolved into being the one place on, on island you could buy a drink. But it's definitely the place where I think everyone comes to for a chat or, you know, when, when tourists or visitors come in, it's right next to the airport. So they come in and have a chat. They find out, you know, what's happening on island and, and the locals love some of the events we do. Because we're so remote, you can't just go to the movies or to... You know, the sort of things most people, you know, go to for entertainment. So the club, you know, over the years, they used to actually have beach parties inside the club and fill it with sand. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, um, which, you know, is a huge job, but an amazing experience to, to have. Tell me about those traditions. What sort of things are you talking about? So an example, a big example is the Olympics, the Cocos Olympics. And I think in any small town... I don't call myself a local still. You know how lots of small towns... How long have you been here, Amy? I've been coming for about, I don't know, 15, 16 years, <laughs> back and forward. But I've always been... I don't know, the word local is special, I think. I don't, and, and some people joke and say, it's got to be 10... You've got to live here 10 years straight. You've got to, you know... I've only been in one Olympics, and that was um, in 2021. It happens every second year, but that's also evolved. It used to be, I think, Home Island versus West Island, like years and years ago. And what it is now, it's the Home Islanders still get involved, um, but it's mostly based around West Island. The island is split into two teams, the Mantas and the Mores, red and blue. And it's a, a, a 10-day, everyday event. Like every, every day for 10 days, you'll have something after work, school, one for kids, one for adults. And that can be pub games. At the club, we'll do darts, pool you know, and it's split into those two teams. And then it can be something bigger. Last or A couple of years ago, we did a beach carnival. And that's all volunteer organised by people within the community that say, I'll take on the beach carnival. They organise the games. There's food at every event because you want people to be able to not worry about going home and cooking. Mm -hmm. So every night there's something different to eat, whether it's a barbecue or Mexican, whatever. And there's also heaps of pranks. Like, it's pranking pretty heavily between the teams. Some examples, you know, I got home and there was just a huge pile of leaves, like massive, couldn't get over it in front of my steps. You know, just <laughs> things like that. And the, um, which team do you belong to? So I'm a Moray, so that's a bl the blue team, so the Moray Eels. We also, in the last couple of Olympics, they've been doing island-wide tag, so you have to opt in if you want to play, but people are chasing each other. Adults are chasing each other. 
through the supermarket, you know, I got tagged at the library. Someone came in and got me and then it switches between the two. And at the end, uh, whoever's left and hasn't been tagged, they have to run around on the oval to see who ends up as the winner of tag. So things like that, they just, you know, you try to explain what's special about Cocos, but something like that where adults are fleeing from each other in the streets. I've never experienced anywhere else in the world things like that. Cocos Club co-manager Amy Rosebach. That sense of fun is something that everyone I spoke to on Cocos loves about the place, including former resident Margaret Eaton. She lived on the island in 1983 with her husband and three children. And I spoke to her out on the veranda with her eldest son, Anthony, who was visiting with his own kids. It was, it was the most incredible childhood looking back. You don't realise it at the time, but we were just feral children on this island in the middle of the ocean with you know, no no connection back then, no internet, no television. There was a, a local AM radio station that I had a radio program on for a while as an 11-year-old, and that was it. So we, we ran around this island. It was our playground. It was our whole world. Um, we would get up and ride our bikes wherever we wanted and explore places we were generally not meant to go as well as the ones that everyone went. Uh, and by the end of three years, we sort of, yeah, you knew every nook and cr- cranny, every bommy on the reefs, um, every little hideaway in the jungles that you could get into. We spent our weekends over on DI mostly in our family because we were lucky enough to have a boat. So it was just this really remarkable childhood to look back on. The, the freedom of it was incredible. So, Margaret, what was it like being a mum on this island? It, it took a little bit of getting used to. It's such a, a small, contained little spot. Um, you had to walk a fairly fine line between keeping your family intact and getting overly involved in the family, in, in the social life of the island. And that was very easy to do. There was a lot of sociality in those days. There was something on at the club every night. You know, there was darts night one night, there was tennis competitions the next night. And you were in, expected to be involved, not in everything, but in most things. Perhaps I can tell you a little story about my arrival on the island, which will explain what it's like. We came in on the Thursday... And on the Saturday, I was sort of pottering around in my house, residence number 15, getting ready, the kids ready for school that was starting on the Monday. And there was a knock on the door and a a young gentleman came in, introduced himself as a teacher and said, how would you like a job on Monday? We heard you an education department teacher and uh, we need somebody to come and help us because... One of our teachers, who happens to be our principal, has um, had an operation and things have not gone too well and he won't be back for another six weeks. And um, my response was, no, I couldn't possibly do that. I've got a three-year-old child. I don't know anybody on the island. I'm in no way prepared to do that. So, And there was sort of a little pause for a few seconds and he said, let me put it to you like this. The 11 and 12-year-olds have been running rampant on this island for six weeks. And if you don't take this job, they will run rampant for another six weeks because there is nobody else but you. (laughs) You're it, he said. And I said, well, what am I going to do with my daughter? He said, just bring her with you. Kids are remarkably 
adaptable to circumstance and that was what we all did we just sort of went okay this is how life is now we we get up mum seems to be teaching in the next classroom and no one saw that coming but Mm. we'll we'll roll with it you said you were a children's writer did it play into that do you think this place absolutely leaves a mark on you whether you're here for a couple of years or a couple of decades it definitely shaped how I live how I see the world and how I see myself and how I react to situations and deal with other people again you didn't realize it at the time but well you learned resilience here you had to learn resilience really quickly in terms of dealing with other people particularly Mm. but also yeah just and being you had to be you had to be fairly tough I think children on cocos still get to experience that Robinson Crusoe life that Anthony Eaton remembers in the 80s local tourism operator Pete McCartney wouldn't want it any other way for his two growing boys I've always loved it. I've always had a passion for it and always kept coming back. And, but now we've, we've sort of called this place home. And it, it really is a sense of being like a ship at sea here. You know, we're, we're, we're right in the middle of the Indian Ocean. I like it. I like the small community. You know, I lived in Margaret River in the early days when it was quite a small community there. And my two boys, they've got friends here, you know, that if they want to go for a sleepover, they just carry their pillow under their arm and walk to their mate's place and um, you know they've got great friendships with uh, a lot of the young kids so it's it's a fantastic place for children to grow up. And that is a rerun of one of my favourite shows from last year. There has been illness in the Australia-wide team but we will be back again with you tomorrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.